Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Paul McVeigh. Paul was a professional footballer for nearly 20 years, playing for clubs like Tottenham Hotspur, Burnley and Norwich City, whilst also gaining 40 caps internationally for Northern Ireland. He made over 300 appearances and was a key member of two championship winning teams and rose to the pinnacle of English football. He's also a published author of the ironically entitled book, The Stupid Footballer is Dead. Paul is a lifelong learner and is the first person in history to play in the Premier League and qualify with a Masters in Sports Psychology. He's with us today to share what you can learn from the most ruthless and competitive industries on the planet. And in his current role, he coaches and mentors large company executives and gives keynotes about how you can get the best out of yourself, be the best leader and best team member possible. In today's podcast, we touch on everything from having the right mindset to what it takes to be a great leader to how you can use your mind to envision your future and get the best out of yourself, regardless of what role you're in. Hey, Paul, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very, very well, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm super excited to speak to you about a number of things. We were just chatting before we started recording about your amazing career in football uh, and what you're transitioning now to doing, which is all around teaching people in the corporate setting how them how they themselves can be kind of high performers um to talk me through wh- where did your sort of you know journey begin oh, it's, a, it's a really long story you know the fact that i i do look like a 14 year old child but i'm actually 44 <laughs> now so it's uh you know it's nearly half a century to go um but i suppose really quick bringing up the speed would be that I was uh, born Belfast in the in the kind of the middle of the Troubles, where if anyone's heard of the Troubles in Northern Ireland in the sort of seventies and eighties, and and I grew up in those, and eventually left in ninety four to go and join Tottenham Hotspur over in England, and and that was really just me going outside and and thinking it was normal to go and play football with your friends in the street while tanks were driving past you and soldiers with rifles were walking past you and bombs going off pretty much on a daily basis. But when I did leave Belfast in 94 and, and joined Tottenham Hotspur, ironically, on the same day that Jurgen Klinsmann was signed after the, the World Cup in USA in 94. And, and when I got to North London in this leafy suburb called Enfield and suddenly realized that it wasn't all that normal for bombs to be going off every day and tanks to be driving down your street. And and so that was a bit of an eye-opener. And, and eventually that, that kind of, journey in professional football is has taken me for the last 28 years now and and yeah it's been it's been an incredible roller coaster of a ride not always good times as with any kind of journey but loved pretty much everything that's happened and and learned so much along the way and football as we say in in the uk or soccer as anyone listening in america will will know it uh it's just been a crazy industry over you know the period of time that you played over the last sort of 20 30 years um we've seen transverse fees continue to rise we've seen huge investment in the english premier league certainly from uh you know outside investors buying clubs for for you how have you sort of seen the that landscape change and, and how did it sort of affect you when you were playing 
Yeah, I think it's a complete transformation and, and lots of it in really, really good ways. And, and interestingly with your, I know your podcast goes out to the American audience and, and actually a lot of football and the, I suppose the techniques and what we were doing, they were learning from the likes of the American sports because whenever I arrived in Tottenham Hotspur and it didn't really matter, it could have been any of the big clubs in England at the time, but essentially they were run very amateurishly and probably I didn't know that and they didn't realize at the time but just to give you some sort of context to that we arrived in the youth team in 1994 and we had a coach and a physio the first team who were supposed to be one of the best teams in the country in the world and they were competing for the biggest prizes and they only had a coach assistant coach a physio and a kit man. And so there wasn't really a huge difference. This had a couple of more staff members for coaching. Now let me fast forward nearly 30 years. And, you know, as you said, I've, I've had my time in the playing side of football and nearly 20 years doing that for the last 10 years or 12 years of doing this. I've been working not only as a performance psychologist in, in the corporate world, but also as a sports psychologist in the professional football world with a couple of English Premier League teams. And, and, the last team that I was working with, Crystal Palace, we had just in the academy, there was a head coach, two assistant coaches, two physios, a strength and conditioning uh, coach, <laughs> a complete you know overall of sports science. There was, there was the nutritionist, there was the data analyst, there was myself as a psychologist, you had kit men, you had a doc. And it just showed, and that's at the academy level. So the give that some sort of context and you can only imagine what it's like and just the last little snippet just on that story in terms of transformation the last thing i heard about liverpool was they had four mathematicians working for the first team because that's the complexities <laughs> of of football and 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 essentially analyzing the data now well i mean there's, there's so many um parallels to you know sports psychology and, and everything you've just spoken about there with the team that surrounds the players and and the team around the team i guess that also applies to corporate but before we sort of dive into that in detail with your your uh, you know subsequent degree in sports psychology just you know with your own journey one of the questions that i get asked about all the time when anyone listens to the podcast is you have these amazing guests on who are elite athletes who uh, you know, in your case, you've been capped for your country multiple times, which is an incredible achievement. You played for some of the best teams in the English Premier League in a very, very competitive uh, period in in football sports history. For you, when you were growing up, do you think that was down to talent? Do you think it was down to hard work? Do you think it was down to something else? Yes, it's, it's I suppose, the reason why people ask you that question. I've been asked that question as well lots of times is is because it's so difficult to understand. And and I think one of the things just to mention is that because I left school at 16 and even though my my mum especially was was a huge proponent of me getting my education, but that was only to a kind of high school level. And, and then whenever I left, I actually always felt I wanted to go and do a degree. So I actually started a business degree when I was 21, but realized that the challenges I had was I couldn't cope with the mental and academic demands as well as the physical demands of playing professional football so there was no choice really the academic side went for me so then I went at about 20 or 29 and went and did my actual degree and eventually went and got my sports science degree while I was playing and it was only about five or six years after I'd stopped playing that I went and got, got my master's in in psychology so again just to try and give me that extra credibility and the reason why I'm telling you this is more to say that 
because I'm not an academic and, and even the, the masters in psychology didn't really feel like it hugely benefited me, but it did give me that real critical thinking and that cause and effect and trying to understand not just performance, but also why things happen and why people do certain things. It's so multifaceted, it's so complex, so complicated that it, it's almost an impossible question that you have asked me and you get asked. If I were to just give some sort of maybe percentages along the way, I would say that when I was growing up, I was probably a good young player in my area. So people would know that I was one of the better players, but I wasn't the best player. And to put that into context by um, under 15 or U15, I was not even chosen for my national team. And there was only about 12 or 15 kids going across the England team, English teams at the time. So I wasn't even in the top 15. Even by the time I got to 18, 19, 20, I still wasn't being played regularly for my country. So that puts it into context where I was. And that's only coming out of Northern Ireland. Then you go across to all of the players in England, Scotland, but across the world who were all playing in England. So I really do believe that the reason why I had a long-term career in professional football and the fact that I won a couple of um, English titles, I won a trophy at Wembley, I, you know, I retired injury-free and all of these other things that I was fortunate to do. I think was down to my mindset and my psychology that allowed me to keep adding to what God had already given me. And, you know, it's really hard to tell on a podcast, especially if anyone's listening to this rather than watching it. You know, I might sound really sort of big and brave and bold, but I'm only five feet six. So I was always, I was always the smallest player <laughs> in our team, you know, at one meter 67, you're always the smallest player. So the athletic side of what I had wasn't particularly, you know, worth shouting about talent or ability was very much in the middle and I do believe that it was down to my desire to improve from people I learned from my desire to get better across all areas and really having the flexibility in my approach to keep doing things that maybe other people weren't and simple example was whenever I was 17 I read a book by Tony Robbins who I'm sure lots of people will have heard of and especially because it was so appealing to me at the time, it was called Awaken the Giant Within. And being a little shorter, so as I am, I thought that, that's ideal for me. So I got <laughs> I got to read this. But even given a you know a, a pretty much a self help book, a personal development book to a seventeen year old kid, most of them probably would have thrown it in the corner. Whereas I actually read it, started to plan at things like goal setting and affirmations and all of these things that I was applying in life at seventeen. And even another example on the back of that was then when my mum suggested I should try yoga, that in 1994, 1995, very few professional footballers were doing. And you fast forward 20 years and, and I managed to leave a, an incredibly you know, tough and really challenging sport from a physical point of view, injury-free. And even now at 44, I still feel as flexible now as I've ever been when I was a kid purely down to the fact that I've been doing yoga for the last 28 years. So really long-winded way of answering the question. Essentially, it's I think it's down to more what I was learning along the way as opposed to what I started off with. For sure. And, and you know, you, you mentioned um, some of the, the, you know, the ups and the downs of, of your career as with any kind of sports team, you're going to win, you're going to lose, you're going to draw. How have you seen that then translate to you know, some of your corporate clients and customers who you speak in front of to sort of inspire them. What is that translation step between being a high, you know, elite performing athlete uh, and then working in a corporate environment? How, what, what are sort of some of the, the common things that you talk to people about? Well, one of the simplest way to describe it is I actually, whenever I went to study my degree, 
when I was still playing. I didn't have the academic qualifications to get on straight away. So they said, because of your playing ability, that can give you some credits. But actually, if you went and did a coaching course or coaching badge, then that might give you the extra bit to get you over the line. So I went and did that with the English FA. And, and even though I didn't really sort of think that I wanted to be a coach when I'd stopped playing, I didn't want to go down and do the same thing that most people came from football, what they did. And the only thing I really took from that coaching course was that there was a model of performance and it's called the four corners. And essentially it's like if you divide it up a square and say the top left is your technical ability to do your job or your role, or of course in my world was to be a professional footballer. Then you have the bottom left, the physical side, top right would be the psychological element, or I call it mental uh, aspect of performance. And then the bottom right would have been your social side. So when I saw that and when I've started to transpose the lessons that I learned in professional football, and just to put that into context, I really do believe it's it's probably the most competitive and probably the most ruthless industry in the world. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, most people don't grow up thinking I really want to work in a bank <laughs> or I really want to work in this factory. You know, so many kids around the world are wanting to be sports stars and because football happens to be the biggest sport in the world, so many kids all over the world want to be a professional footballer and don't even just want to do it in their country. They want to get to English Premier League because it's the richest and most prestigious league in the world and, and exact same as me. So I think whenever you share this with the corporate world and you say, well, just to do your role, just to do your job in, in, your, in your company, technically you have to be pretty good. You have to be very confident, otherwise you wouldn't get the job. And same with me, just to have the technical ability to walk into the English Premier League dressing room, you have to be the very, very top level. But what that means is then is once everybody's technically at the same level, well, surely that should mean then that the performance should be consistent and equal across the across the year, across the season. And actually, we know there's a huge variation. There's a constant ups and downs. So then you have to understand, well, okay, what else can impact it? Physically in the corporate world is probably less important, but I maybe even challenge and argue to say that in the last couple of years, with COVID and everybody working from home now, the more we need to get up and move and, and get kind of keep our physicality in a decent, healthy perspective. I think that's a good starting point. But in my world, it was everything. I had to be one of the best athletes in the world. But then whenever you say, okay, so what about the, the psychological or the mental aspect of performance? How important is that for people's performance in the corporate world? And I think most people would agree it's probably the single biggest impact of performance. So really what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, let's all get to the same point that once we all agree that probably the mental aspect of your performance, whether it's in a sporting context, whether it's in a corporate context, or even just in life, is probably the biggest difference between people. Well, then my question is, so how much work are you doing on that? <laughs> and Alex, the amount of times I've asked that to some of the most impressive, high-achieving, high-flyers in the corporate world, and suddenly the tumbleweed just comes in one side of the room and drifts out and goes out the other because <laughs> so few people are doing anything. In fact, it goes far as to say the majority of people do absolutely nothing to consciously improve their mental aspect performance. And in my side, without being judgmental, because it's I'm in no place to judge people, more from an observational point of view, I think it's crazy because... For me, it's the single biggest thing I work on every single day because I know if I get this right, I'm going to say this, I mean, my mindset, my psychology, my attitude, my thinking, my, my whole way of doing things, my mentality, if I get that right, every single other aspect of my life falls into place. 
You're listening to the Human Performance Podcast by Verti. If you're enjoying this episode, why not join our newsletter? When you sign up, you'll receive a copy of Level Up straight to your inbox every Thursday with the latest tips, tricks, and news about all things human performance. Head over to verti.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. That's verti.com forward slash newsletter. You can find this in the show notes. Anyway, back to the episode. It's re- really interesting. And just, you know, even listening to you speak, uh, you know, up to, up to this point in the podcast, you strike me as someone who is just an absolute like lifelong avid learner, even if, you know, by your own admission, you weren't the most sort of academically gifted person. But, you know, from reading through a Tony Robbins book uh, to then, you know, do it, pursuing your degrees and, and building your company now beyond sport. Is that something that was conscious or do you think that was something that you kind of fell into after sort of reading through that Tony Robbins book? Once again, you're, you're back to the cause and effect, aren't you? Why, why am I a lifelong learner? Uh, it's hard to say if I, if we're a game or if we're to have a guess at it, I would probably say it might have something to do with my dad because, you know, if, I don't know if you remember, but in our house, um, we had these books called Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica. And, you know, my dad, I think he won them in a competition or something like that. But once we'd got them in our, on our bookcase in the shelf in, in the living room, and we would just be sitting there watching the TV one night. And then my dad would just wander across to one of the books, pick up, say, um, and he'd open it up and he'd just sit at the dinner table and just start reading through it and then go, oh, Paul, look at this. Look at, look at, look at this Mars. Look at the size. We look at the, like, the temperature, the distance from it. You know, and just this kind of desire for learning, even just the pleasure for getting that new learning into his life. He was so passionate about so many things in his life, and one of them clearly was learning, and probably by osmosis, I maybe picked that up and saw how he was doing it. But of course, the other aspect was that reading the likes of the Tony Robbins books, but also being coachable whenever I was essentially every single day being told that my performance wasn't good enough because that's what you know professional coaches tell you because they are wanting you to get better and no one plays the perfect games you're always striving to get better stronger fitter you know more street less mistakes every single day so even having that drilled into me because i really do believe you're a product of your environment and having that desire to improve being surrounded by world-class people in their fields who show you how and goes probably long-winded way again sorry i think this is what happens when you're irish alex you just you start off on one question and going on to another but it, it probably goes back to the fact is this is how do we learn this why do we do it why are we kind of the person and whenever you do see the likes of i don't know say a teddy sharingham or a jürgen klinsman or Saul campbell who went on to be one of the invincibles at arsenal or just any of these top class players that i was very fortunate to be around they are trying to be the best of the best every single day. And that level of intensity, that level of desire to improve and be the best is really infectious. It's really interesting. And I think, you know, I, I'm a massive advocate for anyone who listens to this podcast of obviously always being learning, whether you're an executive, whether you're just starting out, whether you're a sports person, um, because that really is the best way to improve your performance, whatever you are doing. Um, but, you know, leaders in particular, executives, often don't give themselves time to learn. They kind of get through that corporate ladder, they get to a point, and then they almost stop, whether it's for time management reasons, um, or, or maybe it's just that they don't appreciate some of the things that you know, you've mentioned there, like mindset and working on your soft skills. W- what do you say to those type of people to help them become better leaders? Well, I suppose it comes down to what do you want? At the end of the day, this, this is the 
the most simple, most basic question of, of what do you want? And if what you're doing in life, if the experience that you have day to day in your life is what you have set out to achieve or it is what you want or even if you what you want to achieve is I don't care what it is, well then if you're happy with whatever that is, fantastic. It's amazing whenever I do work in the corporate world that people don't just seem to want success in one area of their life. They seem to want it across multiple areas of your life. And just to put this into a little bit of context, I've had numerous conversations recently with say the MD of Savills, you know, a huge high end property, you know, multinational property company or or someone who's been on the board at Sainsbury's and they train five and six times a week. And I'm wondering how what the connection is because they want to not just be physically fit to be able to do the job, but to be able to stay healthy and fitter for their friends, their family and, and themselves. And and I suppose it's really back to whenever I want to try and get the best out of me, that very much fits into the alignment and is congruent with the people who you work with in the corporate world. So the work I'm doing with Invesco at the minute, I'm working with three of their most very, very senior leaders at a global level. And I'm just working on how to improve and com- continue to improve, not just their professional element, but also the personal side as well. So because that fits perfectly with not just those as individuals, but also the company, because they're always looking to improve and grow. But of course, the flip side of that is not everybody wants to keep improving and growing. Some people are very, very happy staying in the comfort zone. And again, Alex, that is completely fine. It's just not necessarily the way that I want to do things. For sure. And I, I think it's so important that people, you know, even at a very high level, invest in their own, uh, you know, learning and education and, and, and just kind of collect feedback to improve. But for, you know, you, when you're working with clients now, what are, you know, some of the ways or techniques that, that, you know, you go through, you know, their current lives, whether it's personal, whether it's professional and, and bring in those elements of sort of, you know, elite performance to, to help them improve? Is that sort of feedback? Is it coaching? Is it sort of analysis? Is it everything? Yeah, I suppose there's there's a, there's a complete mix and, and probably what's shifted my business over the last couple of years. And I know COVID's been horrendous for lots of people across lots of different areas of life. And it was definitely for me in, at the very, very start. But then the last couple of years, my, my business has completely shifted in the way that I do things, not just in terms of how I deliver it, not necessarily just being in the room with people, but also delivering virtually, whether, you know, that's for Microsoft or Cisco or even some of the work I'm doing with Invesco, you know, lots of it is doing virtual now, but also because you have this ability to be able to bring more people in to share more of their knowledge than just me. And I suppose at the start of my second career, if that's what you want to call it, I was delivering all of the sessions. I was doing the keynote speaking. I was doing the corporate training. I was doing the coaching. Whereas actually I only have this much knowledge, you know, in this little tiny little area of me and my life is how much knowledge I have. But because I now bring in like, for instance, who can I suggest? The MD of Coca-Cola comes and speaks on my program just because his whole world and experience is very, very different from being an elite athlete and working as a performance psychologist, but equally as impressive. And as soon as you bring the MD of Coca-Cola, come in to speak to the the SLT or or the senior people you're working with, suddenly that just really, really helps them because the way I share something might be one angle. He might come in and share from a completely different angle, whereas we also bring in the likes of, uh, we have a, a Paralympic gold medalist who just won gold in Tokyo last year. 
and she's nine-time world champion. And she comes in and delivers on the pro again. Very, very different perspective from the way that I have, as well as the the team of psychologists we have who work and deliver the the executive coaching. So, yeah, it, it always happens. It has to be numerous ways to deliver the program, but there's always an overarching framework and methodology of what we've researched to believe is, is the best way of going about from a mental perspective and, and essentially the different ways that we can improve how we do what we do every single day. And, you know, we, we touched on leadership and we've also mentioned teamwork in, in you know, what makes an organisation kind of function and happen and, and what good teams and, and poor teams look like. Now, you've played across a huge you know selection of different teams you've played with lots of different people in a sporting capacity and you've been uh, you know working with different managers different team captains and so forth what what are some of you know your experiences from your career in football that have helped you understand like what good leadership is or what or what good teamwork is do you think <laughs> you, are, you are asking some of the biggest questions and the hardest questions to answer because the, the you know what is leadership what is teamwork and performance ironically i don't know whether you've been doing your homework or not but those are the three keynotes that i speak about uh, the performance psych actually the psychology yeah. <laughs> of performance the psychology of leadership and the psychology of teamwork only because as, as i've just alluded to those individual subject subjects are so vast. They're so huge. Even if you took leadership from one, from one, one of those three. If I'm talking about leadership, you could be there for weeks or months or years just talking about leadership. But I come at it from a purely from the psychology of leadership because I'm not talking about how to manage people, your communication style, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm talking about what is the psychology of a leader. So again, it might be even more niche, but that is very, very different in terms of how to empower people understanding that essentially you have to be able to walk your talk and and it's it's like me the reason why probably the let's say the kind of the career that i've had after football has gone pretty well is down to the fact that i have to be an authentic credible version of what i'm delivering because if i walked in and i'm not the picture of health and i don't do what i say i'm going to do and i'm not delivering all of these things that we're suppose proposing to people well then it's not authentic and it probably wouldn't go down well so that is one of the biggest things that i've ever learned is that i have to be the embodiment of what i'm sharing and that's at that top level of psychology of how do you every single day be at your best even when you don't want to and you really that's one of the the lessons you learn from being a professional sportsman because i could have so many different things going on in my life at any one time lots of them you know, pretty tough to deal with. But as soon as I walk across that white line, I have to perform as if everything's perfect at home or everything's perfect in my life, even if it's not. So again, that's that compartmentalizing different areas of what you do. So you still have that ability to perform. And it was just one, one other line on the teamwork element. It's probably quite controversial, but I really believe that the teamwork, and I, I love teams. I've been around people all my life. I just get my energy from other people. It's just such a huge part of who I am. I love being in a team, but the controversial side is that actually it's not about the team. It's about you because if you don't perform to your best, let me tell you very quickly, you won't be in the team. You will be getting pulled out by the neck because you're not performing at your best. So actually all of the stuff I talk about in teamwork is all about how you maximize your performance within that team dynamics, because ultimately 
as I said, if your performance isn't what it should be, you'll be in that team. And it, you know, it's it's a really good point you touch on that because it's one of the things that always fascinates me, whether it's in sports or whether it's in high performing sales teams. If you are say, uh, let's say, a coach in in the footballing world, or you're a sales team leader, you've got you know, hopefully, you've got a, a team of really really talented individuals, but they're all very conscious that if they're not performing in sales, if they're not hitting their quota, or in football, if they're not you know, scoring or winning, that brings in added anxiety, which then kind of compounds any negative effects. For, for anyone kind of listening who, you know, might be in sales or might be in any kind of corporate environment who is dealing with this kind of what I would term sort of quite high pressure situations where things might not be going as, as you'd planned, you might be on a bit of a, uh, a lull. How can you as a team leader, you know, motivate your people and not be the type of manager that I'm sure everyone's had including yourself Paul where they you know they 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 shout at you and they they you know do counterproductive things yeah well that's okay and this is really fascinating because even just what you mentioned there and the I suppose there's the presupposition that if thing doesn't go or if something doesn't go according to plan then there could be a little bit of negativity or anxiety or the pressure builds up and all those different phrases that you're using and my question would be why why does that have to be the case why why is why would that be the the route or the only response to something not going according to plan? So that's probably one of the the, the biggest things that I'd learned, and I learned this from actually our sports psychologist who I work with in Norwich City, and and I didn't realize that it's never what happens is the most important thing. It's always how you think about what happens, or your response to what happens, or actually to even break it down even more simply. It is the meaning you give to it that's going to dictate how you respond. So, for instance, any event, let's put it into sporting context, I could, say, miss a chance in the last minute of a game, the game's tied, and the chance I miss means we don't win the game. Now, prior to me learning this very, very simple aspect of psychology, I probably would have gone home and not just mentally beat myself up for a couple of hours after the game, but probably over the Saturday night, through the Sunday, even through the Monday. So I'm probably holding on to that for nearly 48 hours. And then by Monday morning's training session, you know, I'm probably still hanging on to that miss because I didn't know any better. I didn't have any other techniques to, 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 to use that were going to help me get over this faster. So probably that's not very nice for me, not very conducive for my performance. Even by Monday's training session, I'm still probably hanging on to what happened on Saturday. But then whenever I realized that I can give that a different meaning, and instead of asking this question, myself questions like, oh, Paul, why do you always mess up? Or why are you always so stupid? Or whatever it is, I was suddenly just changing the questions I was asking myself. Things like, okay, so what can you learn from this? Or what could you do differently next time to try and give you the outcome that you wanted? And just that simple switch I didn't realize was down to me. Because for the first probably 26 years of my life, I used to beat myself up if things didn't go according to plan. Now, the exact same thing happened. I might have had it a week later. Once I had this new information, I still might have had a chance in the last minute. still might have missed it. But I just would have finished the game, walked out of the dressing room, and I wouldn't have been beating myself up because I know it was me beating myself up, and that's not conducive either for more high performance or it's not very nice for me. So I know there was another way, whereas most people, like you said, don't hit their targets, don't get the big pits that they were going for, don't go for the outcome that they were trying to achieve. And then everything goes a certain direction and pretty much what you alluded to at the start. And I'm saying, well, it doesn't have to be like that. And actually, the best performers 
very quickly put that behind them and focus on what they can be doing going forward as opposed to what just happened. I think that's just amazing advice. And I think there's there's always those people and, and I, like you, was always kind of guilty of this when I was uh, younger and, and still to a degree now, actually, I would, you know, probably overanalyze things and beat myself up about it. Um, but, you know, there are other people who kind of, you know, catastrophize about sort of the future and, and, and panic about, you know, oh, if I don't do this, the future is going to look like this. What, what about things like, you know, visualization? We've had folks on the, the podcast in the kind of, you know, sports coaching backgrounds who, you know, will really work with athletes, sit down, visualize someone hitting a tennis ball, visualize, you know, lifting that trophy, whatever it is. What are your thoughts on that side of things? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I think it's probably the biggest technique that's helped me in my sporting career. And whenever I had a conversation with my dad, so I was only 17, very similar to the time whenever I was having a conversation with my mum about yoga, but having a conversation with my dad, he was a huge golf fan, big fan of Jack Nicholas, and he was just saying, why don't you try this visualization that the best golfer in the world does every time before he plays a shot? Long story short, Alex, I started it. I used to do it every single every single day. I'd practice it, but also then go and practice the technique that I was visualizing as well. Fast forward to the end of my career. Now, whenever I'm delivering a keynote, sometimes I'll share a short video, maybe like a minute and a half of some of the goals that I've scored over my career. And would you believe that the one scenario I used to visualize all through the start of my career I scored over 50% of the goals for my career with that exact same scenario, which was getting the ball on the left-hand side, cutting into the edge of the 18-yard box, and then curling it in the far top corner. Now, back to cause and effect. Did I do that? Did I score those goals because of the visualization? Well, it's hard to say. Probably a better question would be, was it a coincidence? And I really don't think it was a coincidence. But the visualization I did for me in football was so, so helpful and beneficial for me that I then used it in the corporate world when I'm going in and delivering keynote speeches in front of big audiences and thousands of people and you're suddenly walking out in big arenas that at the time I'd never done before. So I was using the exact same principles of visualizations, saying affirmations to myself so that I'm putting myself almost rewiring my brain because we know about the the plasticity of the brain because of neuroscience in the last 20 years. We know that we can almost rewire our brain and from whenever I'd stopped playing football at 32, I'd never spoken in public, ever, ever. And now, 12 years later, it is the single biggest buzz, most enjoyable aspect of my professional career. And to go from never having done it, using this visualization technique of imagining myself walking in the big arenas, having that you know, great opening line, the whole audience laughing, and straight away you're up and running, doing that over and over, but then also saying affirmations like, I enjoy every possibility of speaking in front of an audience. When Alex, when I was 32 and I'd never done it before, at the back of my mind, the little voice was saying, no, you don't. <laughs> but I kept saying it to myself every day. <laughs> I enjoy every possibility of speaking in front of an audience. No, you don't. But because I was gradually improving, gradually getting better, more confident until eventually, about a year and a half down the line, I started thinking, actually, this is okay. I quite like this. But I'm still saying it to myself every day. I enjoy every possibility of speaking in front of an audience. Guess what, Alex, 12 years later, guess what I do? I don't just enjoy it. I honestly, I absolutely love it because now it's not about me anymore. It's not about me and my life, my career, anything like that. It's now I feel so privileged, so blessed and fortunate to be able to go and share what I've learned. And because I'm in a tiny, tiny percentage of the world's population of ever let's say, played against Cristiano Ronaldo or scored a goal against Manchester United in the, in the English Premier League, 
And because I can share those kind of lessons, and I really hope and believe that they can help people move forward in their lives, it really is the most enjoyable thing I do in my professional life. Well, it's absolutely amazing. And I think it's even more amazing because, uh, you know, we've had sports professionals on this podcast and, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who didn't quite make it to the, the big time or even those who did really struggle once the, you know, their playing career ends. And, and you've obviously gone from strength to strength, kind of challenging yourself. So it's just an absolutely amazing example of, you know, someone who's very passionate about bettering themselves at every single stage. So it's, it's just amazing. Um, ju- just as we start to wrap things up, Paul, um, I always ask people at the end of the podcast, you know, who is the person that's inspired them or, you know, who is your human performance hero? So I'd love to hear who yours might be. Um, that's a really, really good question. Um, <laughs> it kind of stumped me a little bit. My mind is wandering towards Tony Robbins. And, I'll, and the only reason why I'm saying that is because I think, and I haven't met Tony Robbins before, although when I read that book at 17, I thought, wow, this is, this is really good. I really like this stuff. This is really going to help me. And it did help me through my career. And, and by 32, one of the first things I did whenever I stopped playing was go on a keynote speaking course in, in America. And so I clearly, after playing professional football and outside of the Premier League for most of my career, was not a, you know, financially well off. So I had a few pounds in my pocket, but not particularly well off. And so I decided to invest that little bit of money that it saved after after my footballing days. And I went off and, and paid to go on a keynote speaking course in America. And who was I in that residential week, staying in an apartment in Tampa, Florida for that entire week? Who was I with? Tony Robbins' son, Jarek. He was studying and learning to be a keto speaker. So it's kind of amazing. And so this link of either learning, reading from Tony Robbins, learning from the son, being good friends with the son, keep reading these books and his, and all of the things he now puts out across lots of different platforms. I think he's probably been one of the biggest inspirations that I've ever had because as he's evolved and how I've evolved, we seem to be going down the same path. So not just personal development, but now he's very much in the financial sector. And because I've got such a huge interest and passion about investing in stock markets and learning the, the nuances and intricacies about it and reading his books on money now, rather just about personal development. So he's probably the one person that I've really kind of looked up to the most. And the fact that he's six feet six and I'm only four foot nothing. <laughs> well, amazing example. And, um, you know, Paul, I think we could probably, you know, talk about leadership, teamwork, sports psychology for, for ages and ages and ages. But, um, you know, if, if people do want to find out more, um, where can they go if they want to work with you or find out a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, well, I think probably one of the easiest ways to connect with me is, is on LinkedIn because I, I have uh, a really, really good network across the world on there because I'm very fortunate, as I said, Alex, to, go and speak for the likes of Microsoft in Singapore or for Cisco in America or, you know, speaking in Germany next month, wherever I happen to be. But I've got lots of lots of clients and colleagues all over the world. So that's a really good point. Just Paul McVeigh on, on LinkedIn. Um, also, my website, just paulmcveigh.co.uk is another good place. And um, we didn't really mention the book just because it's probably a little older now. And, and I wrote that just a couple of years after I'd stopped playing. So if you do go on my website, then you do have the, the opportunity. Um, to download my book for free just have to put in your email address and get the book and of course it's uh it is an ebook rather than a rather than a physical book so it probably help you sleep at night rather than fix a wonky table <laughs> well paul it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and uh wishing you all the best of, of luck in the future my pleasure alex thank you